0: Hello, and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today.
1: Today on JOSPT Insights, we are bringing you another case reports episode from our sister journal, JOSPT Cases. We're sitting down once again with Dr. Lynn McInnes. Dr. Lynn McInnes is one of the editors of JOSPT Cases, and she is known for her work in diagnostic imaging as it relates to physical therapy. In 1997, she authored The Fundamentals of Orthopedic Radiology, the first radiology textbook written for and by PTs, one which is used in the majority of DPT curriculums in the U.S., and which is currently in its fifth edition. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland.
2: And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics.
1: Lynn, thank you so much for returning to JOSPT Insights to talk about this case. Let's just jump right into it. What are we looking at here?
3: Okay, I love this case. I use this quite often when I'm teaching because there's a whole lot to learn from it. We have a 51-year-old man who is a surfer in California and he falls in shallow water. He hits the left side of his head, causing a hard right side bend. He states that he had immediate but fleeting pain into his right arm. But he didn't perceive that he was really that injured. And so being an avid swimmer, he kept swimming in the following days. However, at about five days out, he decides to come to a direct access PT clinic as he's not getting any better and his pain is varying from mild to severe so from about a 2 to a 7 on the numeric pain scale and it's localized at his mid and lower neck. So upon evaluation his range of motion's pretty good just mild deficits
1: and I just want to interject real quick in this moment because we're about to share some more important information. But before we do, if you want to think about what you would do in this scenario, and really what you would do in this scenario if this was just your everyday and not a specific case that was be that was being used as an educational tool, take some time now, hit the pause button, think about what you would do with all the information presented to you at this point. And when you're ready, go ahead and let's move on forward.
3: But simply because there was a dangerous mechanism of injury. In alignment with those Canadian cervical spine rules, the physical therapist decides to order radiographs. So when we printed this case in the journal, we showed the lateral radiograph. And on this view, you cannot directly see the fracture, but you see the classic hallmarks of vertebral injury. And this is what we teach on the lateral radiograph. The lateral radiograph is always the first image they make after any neck trauma because the geometry is so easy to see variations from normal. So on this lateral view, there is your anterior vertebral line, which should be a smooth concave line. But on his, there's a big step off in that line. C4 appears to be subluxed forward over C5. Second, there is this fanning or widening of the space between the spinous processes of C4 and C5. Both of those signs are suggestive of serious injury. What typically happens with this type of lateral radiograph in the setting of and acute trauma is that next you go to computed tomography. And he did have a CT scan. He had a right pedicle and lamina fracture. And this type of fracture is called a mass fracture, a free floating mass fracture, because it's broken off the pillar of the superior and inferior facet away from the body of the vertebra. So it's a highly unstable fracture. Also, because that fracture line went right through the transverse foramen, you worry about the vertebral artery. Because of that, he was also referred for a magnetic resonance angiogram, and that confirmed that he did indeed have a right vertebral artery dissection at C4. This is just just so fascinating because it's such a serious injury. And this guy had gone back to swimming had been swimming for five days before he shows up at therapy. What happened to him is he goes to surgery and he had an urgent two-level disectomy and fusion from C3 to C5. He did really well. They did a follow-up at four months and he had no pain, no neurovascular symptoms, and he had returned to surfing and swimming without any complications. So this is certainly a very strange case and, and strange for so many reasons. First of all, that he could do that much activity with an unstable fracture. So it's it's fun to talk about. Like why could he do that? For one thing, he had a high pain tolerance. This was a Navy man and that's part of the culture perhaps. If you're military, you suck it up. It could have been that his muscles were so strong or in spasm that they had, there was this inherent stabilization. He could have been self-medicating and, and covering up the pain.
1: Lynn, so before we get more into the clinical side of this case, you mentioned magnetic resonance angiogram, and that's not something that I'm particularly very familiar with. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is and why it's useful?
3: Oh, yes. This is a really neat imaging study. It used to be whenever you had any arterial or any vascular injury, the gold standard was conventional angiography, where you would be injected with a um, contrast, usually iodine-based, and get some really nice images. But it was invasive and you had the iodine in you. But MRI, angiography, doesn't use that type of contrast. MRA is Really, it's a, a general term describing this very diverse group of MRI pulse sequences. And they're used to generate a signal from flowing blood. Because, you know, on conventional MRI, flowing blood has no signal, it appears black. So this is playing around again with pulse sequences to make flowing blood appear white. So it's usually a T1 sequence and again they manipulate the pulse sequences so anything that's flowing is enhanced so they can actually see that this vertebral artery had nothing flowing in it so when we printed in this case we printed in an axial cross section of the neck when you see an mri cross section of the neck you usually see four dots two white dots remember, we're looking at cross-section, are the carotid arteries. The other two white dots are the vertebral arteries. And so on his fractured side, again, that dot was missing. There was nothing flowing there. Like any arterial dissection, what happens is you tear that inner lining. Remember, there's three layers on the wall of an artery. So with a dissection, you tear the inner lining and this results in the blood entering the wall of the artery. And as it accumulates there, it actually occludes the lumen or they say it's, they call it stenosis, which seems odd to us because we're used to thinking of stenosis as a degenerative chronic thing. But in this case, a, a vertebral artery dissection Will result in occlusion or stenosis of the of the lumen so that's why you don't see the blood flowing it's not because it's it's cut in half from the fracture it's because the blood has entered the arterial wall they usually have a very good prognosis without neurological deficit and they they heal on their own
2: that was a wonderful recap if this person walked into my clinic like i hope i'm in the majority here of like what people are thinking when they read this case like holy cow he has like mild pain in his mid cervical spine after you took a fall surfing, mild range motion deficits. I need to be reminded that my, the first thing is to think about those Canadian sea spine rules. That's one of the reasons that I love this case
3: and use it to teach students because it makes you aware that these guidelines were developed you know, in large cohorts and we should follow them because they're based on rigorous, good research. And so the Canadian cervical spine rule is basically three questions, but the first one starts off with, and again, these apply to patients who have had a trauma, not your chronic neck pain that wakes up with a radiculopathy. These are patients who have sustained some trauma to their head or neck. And trauma could be anything, you know, um, a whiplash on a roller coaster, a fall, a motor vehicle accident. So something that had... A precipitating force applied. The the first question is: are there any high risk factors which mandate that you immobilize and and radiograph? And the high risk factors are that you're older than 65, or you had a dangerous mechanism of injury, or numbness or tingling in the extremities. And so this patient was 51, but he had a he, he didn't have any ridiculous symptoms, but he had the dangerous mechanism of injury. So that immediately is a yes answer for immobilizing the spine and getting a radiograph.
1: Just to, to make it a bit clearer, because sometimes dangerous mechanism can be a little bit subjective, the Canadian C-spine rules do, do actually kind of clarify what that means. Can you go over that for our listeners?
3: Fall from higher than three feet or fall on the steps or any axial load to the head, like in diving, any motor vehicle accident or high speed motor accident where someone was in ejected or crashed. A bicycle collision is also considered a a vehicle accident. And the other point was after um, that question, were there any high risk factors? Are there any low risk factors which allow you to do range of motion? And the low risk factors would be that it was a relatively simple trauma, which is subjective. uh, The patient's ambulating The third question is, are you able to actively rotate the neck 45 degrees left and right? And if they can't, you get x-rays. If they can, then you take the collar off and don't worry about them. So this fella, again, he's walking around and he's rotating 45 degrees. But thank goodness, this physical therapist applied the rules as she should, which was way back at question number one. Was there a dangerous mechanism of injury? I think how many of us would not have caught this, especially someone who's fit and active and had been
2: swimming. all <laughs> oh, right. right. Uh, when in doubt.
1: Yeah, I do. I I do like this case for a number of reasons. And and one of them is because it is not your typical case that's used for an example where there's a clear dangerous mechanism and there's 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 very clear midline pain and large deficits. I mean, we have mild, mild range of motion deficits. We have mild pain. We have someone who's swimming for a couple of days and there are distractors in this case that 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 make it really important to remember that these c spine rules are here for us for a reason. And so that if we have any question, if we're not sure if there's that little voice of doubt in your head, well just just pull them out. They're there for a reason.
3: Right. And if you look at the American College of Radiography's appropriateness criteria, they always start off with that first variant of mentioning Canadian C spine rules or Nexus, because Nexus research looked at similar cohorts of cervical spine trauma coming into emergency departments. And theirs was a set of criteria to remember, but basically you had to fulfill all five criteria to forego imaging. And again, he just hits one of these criteria, but the five criteria for Nexus, and that's the National Emergency X-ray Utilization Study, they have to have normal alertness, the are not intoxicated they have no midline tenderness no distracting injuries and no focal neurologic deficits so if they hit all five of those they don't need radiographs the one that this patient hit was that he had midline tenderness he had that focal mid and lower neck pain that was you know ranging from a 2 to a 7 so even in nexus again it was he hit just one of the criteria. But again, if you were strictly applying this criteria, radiographs would be ordered.
2: Another thing that reminds us is to make sure that we ask like, so how did you fall? (laughs) Have If you just said like, yeah, I fell on my side, that's different than like the axial load, pulling him into that like right side bending, which is going to make it a a dangerous mechanism. So asking those details is going to be really important as well.
3: In this case, they. You know, they have to give us the radiography reports as part of, you know, the author's responsibilities when they send us these case studies. And that phrase, a free floating mass fracture, I wasn't familiar with that. So I I did some searching and these floating lateral mass fractures, they're called that because they're referring to the mass on the vertebral body that is the pillar of both the superior and inferior facet joints. Sometimes they're also called floating pillar f- fractures or pedicle laminar fracture separation injuries. Basically again, it's just the fracture line going right through the pedicle and the lamina and separating it from the whole vertebral ring. It affects two levels by, you know, hitting both superior and inferior facets on that side of the fracture. So that's why in treatment, not only do they do the decompression, but they have to fuse with instruments two levels because two levels are affected by that pillar. So that's the thing that was really fascinating about this and then that vertebral artery dissection, I thought, "What? They just leave that alone and it heals because usually, you know, we think of the vertebral artery as being so serious." So the the, the thing that I understood as I you know, went down that little rabbit hole is the vertebral artery, remember, it goes up the transverse foramen of C6 through C1. And that's considered that extracranial area. And the artery is pretty tough there. The wall is pretty thick. Once it goes, exits above C1 and dives into the uh, foramen magnum, then the walls become very thin. It's very mobile. And when The injuries up high there, I was thinking of all the elderly patients we've had with pedicle fractures, then that's a little more worrisome. The intracranial vertebral artery dissections are much more prone to subarachnoid hemorrhage and they usually have the severe neurological consequences, but these extracranial ones carry a very good prognosis and the majority have mild or no neurological deficits and they are left... To conservative treatment. They, they might have several weeks of an anticoagulant or antiplatelet therapy. Certainly, they'd be follow up with another MR angiogram.
1: So Lynn, just as a recap, it sounds like, you know, the big takeaways here are don't get distracted. Use your C-spine rules, use Nexus, rule out all the bad stuff. And if you can't, it's time to refer.
2: That was a nice summary. Thanks, Dan. We'll post a link to the awesome article, the Canadian C-spine rules and that Nexus study in the show notes for anybody who wants to reference those.
1: And I just want to highlight the journal JOSPT cases here for the great content they have. And I've had the case up while listening to you narrate. And it's something that I have to recommend. If you're listening to this, bring up the article because you get to listen to Lynn narrate what's going on while looking at the images themselves. And it's really just a great educational tool. Lynn, thank you so much for for coming on and sharing another case with our listeners. It's been phenomenal to have you back on the show.
3: Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Chelsea.
1: One last time, I want to thank Dr. Lynn McInnes for coming on the show. And as always, I want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights.